This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to West Indies on 99.94 Cricket Every Day. My name is Mashal St. Patrick Hewitt, one half of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. And with me as ever is Santoki Nagilendron, the other half of the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. West Indies on 99.94 is your new home for West Indies cricket content and will be dropping into your podcast feed on YouTube or on the 99.94 app several times every week. So rate, review, like, subscribe, share, all of that jazz. Also, if you get a chance, go check out the Mitch Johnson Show, where the former Aussie Quick talks about his life and cricket. You can find it where you listen to podcasts or on YouTube. Thanks for joining Cricket's Conversation. Today on West Indies on 99.94, we're going to be doing the part two that so many people ask for. Yes, you've guessed it. Part two of where do the West Indies go from here? Santoki, take it away. Yeah, so to give some context, in the wake of West Indies crashing out of the World Cup, which seemed like a lifetime ago, but it was actually two weeks ago, um, and also the fortunes of the ODI side languishing, probably having to qualify for the ODI World Cup, and even the test side, who we can kind of safely say now is our strongest format, still a mid-table side. So this has generated a lot of questions with fans and stakeholders as to what can be done to help the future of West Indies cricket. Where do we go from here? Now, in part one, if you haven't already listened to it, go back, check it out. We talked about the issues in West Indies cricket, mainly the administration, the governance, the complicated nature of politics in the region, which hinders our development of a cricket inside, our ability to develop talent and kind of rise up on the bigger stage. So we've come up with the problems. We've identified the problems. Only right now we present what we think. Now, this is only our opinion. What can be solutions in terms of helping West Indies cricket? Now, Michelle, it's only right as T20 cricket is at the forefront of everyone's mind. A few years ago, it was the pinnacle for West Indies cricket. The GOAT generation were tearing it up in IPL franchises, winning multiple World Cups. Everything seemed rosy in the T20 format. However, We've seen that suddenly turn to the point where we're essentially competing with associate sides to try and qualify for World Cups, make it to the main stage. And this has caused a lot of disillusion within the fans. Now, I think an obvious point to go to in terms of T20 development match is we do not have a domestic T20 cricket um, tournament. So I'll use England as an easy case example. They have the 100 at the moment franchise tournament, but they've also got the T20 Blast, which is where more local domestic club cricketers can play. West Indies have been lacking. We obviously have the CPL, the Caribbean Premier League. However, there are only six franchises and with overseas spots needing to be filled, you only really get an opportunity to play T20 cricket in the CPL if you are at a certain level. You have to be at a certain stage unless you're an emerging player. So there's been calls from Kyron Pollard, Jason Holder in recent months about having a, a domestic tournament for, for players in the region specifically, exclusively to play T20 cricket and get some experience. 
do you think this is something that can immediately help the T20 side match? Yes and no. Yes and no. Um, I think dealing with the, the no, first things first, is that it depends where you stand on this kind of often oft heard um, phrase, the talent in the Caribbean isn't the problem. And over the last few years, Santoki, I've started to question that phrase. Do we actually have the talent that people think we do? And I guess even that can probably be divided into sub-layers of analysis. So maybe we have raw talent, but I'm not convinced we have refined talent. And, but maybe the raw talent is what people are talking about. Now, going, going further uh, with the initial point that you made, if we do still have that raw talent, then would a domestic T20 tournament help refine that raw talent? Again, I don't know how convinced that I am. And the reason why I say that, again, is because there's so many other factors to take into consideration. The small sizes of the grounds in the Caribbean, the, the quality of the pitches in the Caribbean, the quality of the coaching in the Caribbean. So more than just if we suddenly had a Caribbean T20, would that help develop the fortunes of the T20 side? I think there's too many moving parts in addition to the, to the possible existence of a Caribbean-only T20 that... That would mean that unless those moving parts kind of kept pace with the introduction of a of a uh, of a sub T twenty tournament, I don't think we'd see any natural. Um, I don't think we'd see any natural improvement. Also, I think it's worth stating because I think people do also need to understand the the kind of logistics around this. Even if we had a Caribbean T twenty, who's funding it? Who's going to sponsor it? Who's going to be able to pay for? The, the kind of traveling around the Caribbean for a tournament of that nature. So this, again, that's another moving part to, 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 to throw into the equation. So many of the things that require answers in West Indies cricket require a source of, require a source of funding that we might not necessarily have. And to maybe get that funding, we probably have to find, we have to somehow find corporate sponsors from somewhere. And if we can't find corporate sponsors from somewhere, we have to take money out of development somewhere else to suddenly fund a Caribbean only T20. So there's a lot of, do you get my points I'm talking? There's like a lot of issues that almost in order to answer your question, there's a whole next set of issues we have to throw in to then find the answers. Yeah. I think you've made some valid points there, Mash. And let, let's address the first one. So in terms of the raw talent, um, and develop tal- refine talent, as you put it, kind of debate. I think it's important to say, obviously, we can safely say the pinnacle of T20 cricket in West Indies was winning that World Cup in 2016. It's sort of when players were in their peak, everything came together. However, that was six years ago. A lot has changed then. I think we got through a generation of players, you know, Gail, DJ, Bravo, who did have the raw talent where they were able to excel in a format which was still in its early stages and where raw talent could take you to the top. Essentially, we were innovators. However, as the format has become more legitimate, it's become more structured. Therefore, countries with more resources are training, developing players younger how to play T20 cricket. Because if you look at someone like a, a Derald Brevis from South Africa, who managed to hit something ridiculous like 160 in a South African T20 game a few weeks ago, he's only 19 years old. He hasn't suddenly just learned how to play this. You can imagine he's been trained to play, how to clear sixes, how to play T20 cricket from an early age. So I think a domestic tournament would obviously help in some ways because it's given extra cricket to players who badly need it. But players entering a domestic tournament will already be adults. Um, I think it needs to go back further than that. 
how we sort of developing youngsters to get into T20 cricket because a lot of people might say, all right, you need to learn the basics of fundamentals of first-class cricket when you're a youngster. However, if we're seeing the rest of the world teaching players how to clear boundaries, how to play in power plays from a young age, and bear in mind, T20 cricket is probably, it will definitely is a more lucrative way for to tell a youngster how to make a living when they're older. So you have to bear that in mind when you are developing youngsters. So I think it goes even further beyond a Caribbean tournament um, in terms of developing the region. It has to be implemented at an academy level. And this is something which will take years to come. Now, if we focus on an actual on the actual domestic T20 tournament, I think you make a very valid point. Who's going to fund it? There's no Stanford in the region who's going to sign off blank checks to get a domestic tournament. And we've seen with West Indies, we've been playing recently with our sponsor on our shirt, which many would assume, in most countries, you'd assume it was a, a basic necessity to have a sponsor on your shirt as an international side. We haven't been able to get that. So how would we generate sponsors to fund a tournament where you're flying players out from different islands to either play in one location or across different islands? So I think financially, it's going to be very far-fetched for us to expect a domestic tournament to pop up, however beneficial we think it is. Now, we've seen the 60 pop up as part of the CPL, um, be played beforehand. That's had more local players take part in it. So like Ronsford Beeson for Guyana played, Amir Jangu, these players got, got opportunities in the 60. And we had Chris Watson on the Caribbean cricket podcast from the CPL who said the plan is to have the 60 played in different locations and throughout the year. Do you think that do you think that's a viable alternative to a domestic competition? Do you think the 60 ball format can help players or is it just not enough? Oh, it's a sticky one. Um, when the 60 was launched, you had a lot of uh, people around the Caribbean saying, this is a foolishness, I'm not going to watch this. Uh, what type of cricket is this? Actually, the same kind of arguments people made when T20 came along. Um, I'm not watching this. This can't help West Indies cricket. But as things currently stand, Sandogi, the 60 is the only thing that you could argue that cricket West Indies have an actual stake in, financial stake in where they can get some financial reward. Uh, or tangible financial reward out of the format. And people just have to ask themselves, what's more important at this stage? If you truly want West Indies cricket to development, to, to, if you truly want cricket West Indies or West Indies cricket to develop, then you've got to find sources of funding. You've got to, find, you've got to diversify. You've got to find extra sources of revenue. And that's what the 60 is. So you can't say on one hand, I don't want to watch this cricket and it's a waste of time. And what can this do to help West Indies cricket? And at the same time say, well, West Indies need to, cricket West Indies need to find some money and make sure they invest it. It's their responsibility. Well, that, isn't that what the 60s is for, in, in mm. essence? Can that format of cricket help our T20 players? I'm not as convinced, Santelkin. The reason why is because I think T20 has become so tactical. Yeah. It's become so tactical again from a bowling perspective, matchups. When you uh, maximise on your matchup, what at what point you go on the on the attack and so on and so forth. Look, look at the level of analysis somebody like a Freddie Wild and a Wigmore and 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 Kartikeya, for example, go into it on just one T Twenty game. Yeah, so to try and say that T Ten automatically equals T Twenty, no, I, I don't think I'm buying. Um, I don't think I'm buying that, or I don't think that the, the crossover is as obvious as people. As people might think, uh, might might think it might be. So the only really, the only real way I see T10 benefiting us on the field is if T10 becomes a legitimate format in the international game or mm. in the Olympics or something like that. And then I can see how we might be able to maximise off the back of T10. 
Yeah, I think to kind of compare T20, as you said, it's, it's, a, it's an enjoyable format, but to compare it to T20 cricket sort of undermines how sophisticated T20 has become and the ta- kind of tactical nuances that are needed within those 20 overs, which you can only learn by playing 20 over games. Now, Mesh, we've talked about obviously developing long-term. So what are we saying? For this current crop of players, a lot of them are in their mid-20s, late-20s. Is there any way to improve in the format? Do you think a new coach should come in with innovative tactics, is it a case of them having to play more franchise cricket? Or do you just think they've essentially reached their ceiling? These are players who are not talented enough in T20 cricket and don't have enough opportunities to develop. So it is what it is at the moment with the West Indies T20 side. They're essentially a reflection of the state of the game in the Caribbean at the moment. Yes and no. Yes and no, Santoki. I would love to say yes and no. But I think I listened to your episode and people, I urge you to all go listen to episode 31 when Santoki and Jared looked at what a head coach does, right? And there was a point made on that, I think maybe Jared made it, or maybe, I can't remember which one you made it, but we can objectively say that Phil didn't get the best out of our T20 squad. I think we can objectively say that. Could they have played better? Yes. Is their ceiling as high as a Pakistan, England, New Zealand, or India getting to a T20 World Cup final? I'm not convinced. Could we, however... Could we, however, make marginal gains on our T20 side? Yes. So things like, were players playing in the best role? Um, were, were we tactically bowling players at the right time? Did we best prepare players for a global tournament Tournament so that when they got there, everybody was clear, right? I bowl in the power play. Um, I bowl in the middle phases. I come in after the fall of the the second wicket, because my job is to do X. And the reality of the situation is, although we've covered it already in previous episodes, but the reality of the situation, and maybe it's the the unique nature of, of West Indies cricket, we went into a tournament with our number five batsman saying he's not getting on the plane. Somebody who's not played <laughs> West Indies the whole year suddenly getting into the side and not even batting, in, batting as an opener, batting at number three. Um, Carl May is suddenly being the opening bowler. Like So there are certain... To be objective, if we're truly objective, there are certain one percenters I think that we could change that would better improve our T20 chances. But to further answer your questions to, well, what is it? Is that it for this generation? So in that sense, no. But is this a golden generation? Also, no. But mm. that doesn't mean that you can't be better than the, like, the sum of your parts or, or, or whatever it might be. Better, uh, better coaching should, in theory, uh, go a small percentage of increase on the pitch. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there's room for improvement, as we've seen with this side. Um, due to various external and internal factors, they, they can obviously be massive, um, slight improvements in the side. But I think we'll never see them reach the limits, the ceiling of the golden generation. And that's the problem. A lot of fans are expecting them to live up to this generation, which was essentially, will probably be a once in a lifetime generation of players in the, in the T20 format. Now, a lot of people will be listening to this thinking we'll have two or three points which we believe can solve West Indies cricket, as we've already shown in the first 15 minutes, it's deep-rooted issues. It goes beyond just one or two solutions. Now, we're going to take a quick break. And after the break, we're going to move on to 50 over cricket. Now, the Super 50 is taking part in the region. So we're going to analyse how that correlates to the state of the 50 over game in the West Indies and what this means for the ODI side. You're listening to Cricket's Conversation on 99.94. 
Whatever your team, we have the show for you on podcast, YouTube, or on the 99.94 app. We have India, England, South Africa, West Indies, and now Sri Lanka covered. If you want to find us, the best way is to follow us on social media at 9994DM by downloading the 9994 app or Google 99.94 on podcast. We speak cricket. Okay, welcome back, guys. So, as I said before, we took a break. West Indies are currently playing the Super 50, so the Regional 50 over tournament. It's a three-week competition. Um, The reigning champions are Trinidad and Tobago. It's being played uh, um, in Antigua and Trinidad and Tobago, so split host. Now, Michelle, um, we're obviously, we'll probably go in more detail on a future episode about individual performances and kind of what we what we have seen from Super 50. But as a general overview. What are your first impressions? We're a week and a half into the tournament. What are your first impressions of the Super 50 at the moment? Uh, my first impression, Santoki, is that West Indies aren't going to qualify for the OGI World Cup. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, 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 that's the reality. Whoever the new coach is, they've got one hell of a job to try and get our OGI side through those World Cup uh, through those World Cup qualifiers to the World Cup. If I had to bet money now, I'd say we're not making it. And the reason why I say we're not going to make it, Santoki, is... And part of me is glad, though, because all those kind of naysayers, when you and I, because sometimes you and I take licks from people when we like make these <laughs> statements like, oh, we're just not good at old guy cricket, or um, why don't people just look at the reality? We're, we're not that good. Stop trying, to, stop trying to demand things from the side that they're not capable of doing. This Super 50, I hope Santoki, the Super 50, has finally shown people what we're talking about. We're now... I think 27 or 28 innings into the tournament and there have been only been five scores above 250. The last set of games we've watched, all the scores have been under 200. Now, come on, Santoki. Teams are batting 50 overs. <laughs> teams, teams are batting out their overs, Santoki. They're making less than 200 out here. What's, I don't care what pitch you're on, Santoki. You can't, you can't feasibly bat out 50 overs and say 183. Hold that. That don't make no sense, Santoki. People play test cricket in 50 over cricket. Uh, so, so, so I think our problems in the 50 over in the, in the LGI, the list A format, are, are even deeper than our problems in, in, in T20 cricket. Um, I haven't seen much to to assuage my, assuage my fears that my my fears, sorry, that um, we're able to rotate strike. I haven't seen much to indicate that we've got another fast bowler that can help Alzari Joseph. Um, I haven't seen much to suggest that we've got a, an off spinner we can turn to who's going to cause serious problems on the international scene. Um, strike rates in the in the middle order. I'm not seeing a whole lot that basically I guess what I'm getting at Santoki is the current 11, 12 or 13 players that play for West Indies in OJ cricket at the moment, I basically haven't seen enough to say that there's a lot of challenges underneath them. And that's deeply worrying. That's deep because as ever, it poses the question, Santoki. So if we drop a next man who we turn into then? And this is why people like Shimon Hetmeyer can miss a flight and know that when push comes to shove, he still must get in the side because who else are we going to turn to as 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 talented players that we can say, yeah, you might make a difference? 
Yeah, as you said, I think the 50 over is more concerning, partly because with T20 cricket, we can say it's been a fastly evolving format and the simple facts are we just haven't been able to play catch-up with T20 cricket. By and by, 50 over cricket has generally remained the same for the past 10 years, essentially, in terms of how teams play it and what you're looking for. Essentially, 320 plus is a pass score in, in 50 over cricket. It's generally been like that for the past 10 years. But the rot has been there for long term. I mean, if you look at the facts, 2015... We made it to the quarterfinals, took licks from New Zealand, I believe. I think Martin Guptill hit like 264 or something ridiculous. 2019, we struggled to qualify for the tournament by the, by the barest of margins with an umpire teeth out. Rain helped us through against Scotland. Then when we got to the main draw, we only won two out of our nine games. So it's been a steady decline. And we've got to a point now where it's feasible to believe that we probably won't qualify for this ODI World Cup. Now, the problem you said is, we have standout players. So, for instance, the Shy Hope is a world-class 50-over player. But generally, as a team, it's not an excellent side. And the thing is, like you said, the players underneath, the players coming through, there's no real candidates putting their hands up. I mean, against Ireland, didn't we open with Justin Greaves out of nowhere? Um, which sort of shows you kind of the, how how threadbare our reserves are in that tank. So someone like a Shimon Hetmeyer can get complacent and believe they will make it just because we don't have world-class candidates for the ODI side. Now, Mesh, the question I'm going to ask you is, obviously, ODI cricket hasn't changed. As a format, it's been around for, what, 40, 50 years. Um, obviously, for the past 10 years, it's tactically kind of stayed the same. Do you think this is something that can be, that the coaches' development system can be held more accountable for than the players in terms of, we just haven't developed players who can master the white ball format for the past 15 years? Listen, that, that question you've asked is a podcast episode in itself. <laughs> now, we're, we're going to have to get a whole bunch of stakeholders on to, to, to really break it down. But what I will reference is when you and I got, um, I think it was Graham West. When we got yeah. Graham West on the Caribbean Cricket Podcast, might be in episode 71. Do you remember he made that point where he said that one of the things that hinders Caribbean players or West Indian players is shots that they think are ones or twos or fours on Caribbean pitches when they then go elsewhere in the world, that's why they can't pierce the gaps. Because it's the, I think he was making a point that the conditions that the West Indian players are growing up in are, he never used those words, these are our words, we're paraphrasing. But he essentially was implying that, listen, don't underestimate how substandard the conditions are. And that's, that's what the players are learning their game on. So when, pe- when we look at the West Indian players on the international scene, like, and we look at them we're like, why is there a 72% dot ball, dot ball percentage? How, how can't these men find not one single anywhere? And the, like I say, the point that Graham essentially was making was like, listen, they're not growing up in conditions that allow them to necessarily find out how to pierce gaps. They're going to need a better developmental system now, somebody's going to listen to this and go, what the hell are you two talking about? That's nonsense. I'll just say what, I'll just say what came out of the episode. <laughs> so I think unless ultimately, and this is fundamentally one of the issues, if there's not a better developmental system, how are we going to be asking players to suddenly do things that the grassroots can't, not that the grassroots can't teach them to do? You could have the greatest coaches in the world. They're only going to be as good as the tools that they've got. Like, do you know what I mean? So I can, to use a teaching analogy in my, uh, in my other job, I can teach 30 kids and I can teach them well. But say I don't have anything. I've got no blackboard. 
I've got no chalk. I've got no pen. I don't even have a book. So what? I must suddenly teach them everything in the world and all I've got is my voice. Like, come on, give me some tools. Give me some yeah. actual up-to-date tools that allows my set of kids to meet at least the same standard as some other kids elsewhere in the world. So we... People can't look at what's next for West Indies and not appreciate and understand that there are certain structural hindrances that are players. It's, it's like they're going through the system, Santoki, with a with a ball and chain attached to their legs, if, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, no, completely valid points there, Mash. And like we said, this this isn't an easy topic to talk about. We can't cover it in 30 minutes. We might have to do a trilogy episode. We have to do a part three to elaborate on this. But we're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we'll wrap up our thoughts on all of this. If you love the language of cricket and want more, then head over to the 99.94 app and you can hear all of our podcasts and cricket commentary. We're adding new shows all the time and covering cricket series from all over the world. Be the first to hear all of our announcements by following us on social media at 9994DM. Welcome to Cricket's Conversation. Okay, we're back now, Mash, and I think what highlights for me, I mean, we're we're still a week and a half into Super 50. 34-year-old Shannon Gabriel is currently the leading wicket-taker in the Super 50. Now, He's someone not known for his white ball credentials. He has played it, um, but not really regularly for the past three, four years. Now, he's managed to kind of to, um, overshadow all the other bowlers in the region, most of whom, 90% of whom are younger than him and should be flourishing more. What do you think? Just this, t- using this as an example, do you just think there's a disparity in the moment in terms of the quality of a Shannon Gabriel and Akima Roach, who are, who are of that age group, came through a different time development system compared to players in their mid-20s and early 20s who seem to be floundering. There seems to be a disparity in terms of how we develop players, even within that short age range of mid-20s as opposed to players who are in their mid-30s. So Shannon Gabriel's OGI career, OGI career right? Um, he has played 25 OGI matches for West Indies and taken 33 wickets at 34. With the greatest of respects to Shannon Gabriel, who has served West Indies cricket admirably, that's average, yeah, in in, in old Jai cricket. Yet he's coming to our Super 50 tournament and tearing it up when we know that <laughs> when, when we know that it's not even a strong suit of his. He's just okay. He's just okay in a. Do you know how mad <laughs> it is that Shannon Gabriel's coming looking like Shaheen Afridi out here in the Super 50? <laughs> Listen. Listen, I think the reality is this. Um, And I think about the interview you did with um, Tevin Imlak. uh, And for those who don't know what we're talking about, go to the Caribbean Creek Podcast YouTube channel to watch that. Tevin Imlak, Santoki, played for the West Indies under-19 side at the 2016 World Cup. Six years later, he's only really now cementing his place in the Guyana setup. That says everything. So Tevin Imlak is now, what, 25? But arguably, you could say that at the age of 25, his experience level is probably that of a 19-year-old in some of the other international countries. He's, He's not necessarily much further on in his journey because of the way our system is set up. So that's, to answer your question, that's why I think so many of our mid 20 year olds aren't necessarily as a head in their game 
as they should be. They don't for for starters, they don't play enough cricket. I think we've made this point before. Super 50 is going on right now. So um, whoever gets knocked out in the group stages will have played six games. Santoki, that's their lot for the whole year. That's their six 50 over games for the whole calendar year. <laughs> and then we're saying that a man must come from that and play international cricket. It don't make no sense. It don't make no sense, Santoki. <laughs> so this is, yeah, this is this is the problem. What is the, at the moment, how do you make the ODI side? Now you, um, you had a great interview with Alec uh, Afanes from um, Dominica. Um, 23-year-old, hit two consecutive centuries in the opening two games. But that should put him into contention for getting an ODI call-up just because of the quality we have if you make two knocks like that. But it shouldn't be a case of where you've only got six games to prove yourself. Essentially, he'll make this, He'll probably make the squad because it's remarkable to hit two consecutive centuries in your first two games. But that shouldn't be the standards in which you. that's, the, that's how you kind of get considered. Anyone else... If you're not performing in those six games for whatever reasons that happens to players, that's your opportunity gone for the next year, 18 months. So we also don't have a system which allows players to properly and consistently play 50 over cricket and also be observed by coaches. You're essentially going off a handful of games um, and then you're essentially having to blindly pick if anyone tends to be injured or withdrawing from a tour, which is how Justin Greaves ended up on that island tour, for instance. So for me, the the system, and this again links to sort of finances, we just can't afford to have regular Super 50 tournaments where you have to fly players in from different islands and um, and have them for three weeks playing in a tournament. So for me as well, that sort of links to the whole issue. We don't have the resources. There's not a system or a schedule that's beneficial to the players. And then in turn, we're expecting us to compete against sides like India, Australia, England, who have a vast wealth of a system, an ecosystem which is designed to produce elite upon elite upon elite players. Whereas essentially, if we're being realistic, the West Indies system could be from the 80s or 90s. It's not, it's essentially players doing well in spite of the system rather than the system producing them. Let me let me put this in perspective for people. I reckon some of our players, in fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something scandalous. I reckon. Yeah, I reckon some of our players would be further ahead in their journey if we told them to go and just train with Scotland, Ireland and Netherlands for the next year and just went to their setup. I reckon they'd be further ahead in their journey as a cricketer if, yeah. The thing is, people listen to this and go, oh, here goes Mash again with some wild outlandish statement. But I'm not, I'm serious. <laughs> I reckon they might be further ahead in their journey as uh, in their cricketing development if they exclusively went to those countries and said, let me just... Like they wrote to the Scottish Cricket Association and they said, oh, let me let me just hang out with you lot for the next year and let me see where my game is at by the end of the end. Look, look at Josh De Silva. Josh De Silva went to England to play for old Wimbledonians uh, at the age of, what, 18 or 19. Hmm. Two, three years later, he's playing for West Indies. That was probably more beneficial for his development than any games he's played for Trinidad. They're like, do, do, do you know what I mean? So... Yeah. But anyways, we made these points before. But Santoki, I'm mindful of time, so I'm going to throw out, I'm going to throw something out to you, which will which will explain that we have to do the trilogy and do part three. <laughs> Check this because I wanted to say this at the beginning, but I'm going to yeah. throw this to you. I want you to then wrap the show, and then we're going to have to promise the people a trilogy. Check this. So this is an article that Chris Deering wrote um, in the Jamaica Observer. I think it came out about a week and a half ago. So for those who don't know who Chris Deering is, he's the former WICB chief marketing executive and CEO of the 2007 
uh, Cricket World Cup, right? He wrote an article in the Jamaica Observer. I'm just going to read a section of it, Santoki. I'm stitching you up properly here. Um, he said the following. Uh, let me find the right part. There is to state the obvious, no nation called the West Indies. No national team can compete in the modern paradigm of professional sports without a national production line, structure, and most importantly, resources. But Caribbean governments can't justify investing in this institution without obvious national or political benefit to be derived. Neither is there a proper professional cricket infrastructure. We have a semblance of one, but there is no managed production line from kindergarten to the pros. Every other country playing international cricket has one or the other or both. West Indies have none. <laughs> they are able and have invested greater resources than us over the past 30 years, and it is paying off for them. The resource gap is mammoth and only growing larger. I'm not even reading the rest of the talk because we can do our stanza thing and break it down in the trilogy <laughs> episode. But Santoki, I just thought that little section there from Chris, I just thought was quite significant when he makes the point that we have no national production line. Yeah. Guyana is producing for Guyana. Jamaica is producing for Jamaica. Barbados is producing for Barbados. And we mentioned it last, last episode, but those production lines aren't marrying up to say, and let's make sure we all do this for West Indies. So the Guyanese government may or may not invest as much as the Jamaican government, as much as the Barbadian government, as much as the Antiguan government, and so on and so forth. Ultimately, said Tolkien, when we say what's, what's next for West Indies, what's next is we are at the behest of governments and stakeholders in the different territories to give a damn, basically. Yeah, I think there's, there's no consistent policy in terms of development. You're essentially at the whim of whatever party takes over government and whether they prioritise funding for cricket. They might prioritise other sports. They might prioritise it into different sectors or areas. So you're essentially at the whim of whatever government is dealing with your national politics. Um, and that, again, creates a problem because there's no standardised system. But, Mesh, we've been going for 30 minutes now, plus I think we've also raised enough points which could probably fill another few hours. So that's it for me. But before I say, is that is that it from you? What are we saying? Part three, complete the trilogy. Where What is the future of West Indies cricket? Do people need to look out for a part three? People, get us at the comments below. If you're watching this on YouTube, if you're listening via the podcast stream of your choice on the 99.94 uh, app, at us, at Cam Cricket. Let us know. Should we do the trilogy? What next for West Indies cricket? We didn't even touch on test cricket in this one there's just so many layers to this so get us at us, get, out, get at us in the comments people should we do should we complete the trilogy should we do terminate the three let us know <laughs> Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. 
There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix, dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.